Good morning. Please turn with me to Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ happened in this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife but did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son, whom he named Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Tori. Good morning. Good morning. That ah, was a lot better. I, I thought for a second I was, I was actually back in Brazil speaking Portuguese to you. I was like, ah, oh, guy's weird. Hey, what a, what a, what a beautiful day. M- most wonderful time of the year for sure. Even though the weather is not always the nicest outside. Um, so I grew up overseas, right? And uh, right now, this time of the year is like June. And so when you get to Christmas time, it's about... 100 degrees outside, and uh, it's a very different Christmas, if you can just try to imagine that for a second. Maybe you guys, some of you go south to Florida, but even that way, it's not that warm, right? But um, as I thought about this passage this week as I was studying in the past few weeks, I realized that um, just like a coin, every story usually has two sides, right? So yesterday I got my kids arguing on the couch, and I, I called one of them over, and I asked them what was going on, and then I called the other one. I realized I get two stories, two different stories from the same argument. Usually when you're arguing with somebody, you have two sides of that story as well, right? Um, but it's, it's really even interesting for me to think about this because as I thought about my, my engagement with my wife now, um, Looking back, every time we told the story of our engagement, we told the story from kind of like two different perspectives. So we agree in certain things. First of all, it was really cold. It was in February, upstate Pennsylvania, so it was really cold. There was snow outside, so we both agreed that maybe going out for a walk wasn't the best idea that I had had. Um, we both agreed that the, the ring was just beautiful. But there's some things that every time we share the story, we realize that we were actually focusing on different things. So my wife was focusing on how beautiful the ring was, and I was focusing on how am I going to recover from this? Uh, uh, she, she focused on the beauty, and I focused on the bank account. She, um, 
She shared the news with friends and families, and we began to realize that we're actually focusing. We're, we're focusing on the same story, but we're coming from two different angles. And it's really interesting to think about this because the, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, they actually, when they talk about the, the birth of Jesus and the conception that Jesus is described in Scripture, both of those authors actually come from a different angle. Luke's going to talk from Mary's perspective, so he's going to highlight a, a bunch of different things that Mary is going through and some of the promises that were made about Mary. But when it comes to, jo when it comes to Matthew, Matthew is going to focus on Joseph, and there's a reason for it, and I'm not going to tell you yet what that reason is. But he's going to focus on the other side. They're both focusing on the same story, but they're coming from two different angles. Okay? So, as we have seen, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, two weeks ago when Pastor David preached, the genealogy of Jesus was focused on Joseph's, and in one way, in one sense, Jesus' humanity, because it talks about, if you look with me in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, this is the record of the genealogy or the birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay? So Matthew is going to focus on that. But right now in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, Matthew is going to describe the angel of the Lord's announcement to Joseph regarding the state of Mary's divine conception. Listen to this. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophetic coming king, the prophecy about the coming king, and the explanation that the Messiah was actually not only son of man, but he was son of God. Now, look with me in verse 18 again. We have some, some ground to cover here, and I want to focus your attention to the outline. And we're going to focus on three things today, just the fiancé, which is Joseph, the messenger, which is the angel of the Lord, and to finish, we're going to focus on the marriage. Okay, so the fiancé, let's look at the engagement of a godly couple here. So now, let me give you a little bit of a background. In, in, in Jewish society... The process of marriage was a two-stage process. So in the beginning, you would have what we call the betrothal or the engagement, right? So they would get engaged, and they would legally be married at that point, but they would not have physical relations until they were finally married in a marriage ceremony, okay? So it is really interesting because this, this process happened from a contract pros um, perspective. So they signed a contract. And the contract was a binding contract that pretty much was both, both parties were communicating that they, they're willing to be faithful, not only to each other, but they're willing to be faithful to the Lord. So you realize that when you look at the seriousness of the contract, you realize how actually God thinks a little bit about marriage and how serious he takes the, the marriage institution in the Bible. Right? So the point that if you look at the New Testament, Christ is called, the, the church is called the bride of Christ. So he, he, takes, he takes marriage extremely serious. So it was a legal contract, and the contract was actually established by the two families, and it was sealed by an exchange of gifts. So probably the groom would be the one that would pay the most for it, and he would pay sometimes animals. So he's not buying the bride, but he would pay this, this marriage ceremony, and it, the, the, the payment would go towards the father. And I'll explain to you in just a second why that's significant. But the gifts would be from, from animals to mo monetary uh, contributions to the father of the bride. And I want you to think with me just for a second here. Um, in the United States and many other countries like Brazil, usually we, uh, when we get engaged, when we propose to somebody, we give them a gift. And we give them a ring. Now, the engagement ring here 
In the United States of America, the average price for an engagement ring just in the, in the year 2020 was $3,600, $3,700 actually, which is a little bit less than in 2018, which was $7,700, all right? Now, he, here's the purpose of the contract. And I want to I contrast this with the, the, the average price that we actually pay for a gift. The ceiling of the contract provided actually an opportunity. And this, so, so this is not just a legal issue. It was an opportunity for, for the man, the husband, the groom, to actually prove himself that he was faithful once again to the Lord and that he was faithful to his wife-to-be and that the wife was also faithful to the Lord and to the husband-to-be. So it was, in one way, it was, a, it was a testing period, right? This period actually would last between 6 and 12 months. So you're not only trying to be faithful prior to the engagement, but as you get engaged, you're trying to be faithful so you can prove not only to God and to your husband-to-be or to your wife-to-be, but also to the community that you want to be in this relationship in a serious manner. Now, we're going to face a little bit of a problem. Actually, Joseph faced a little bit of a problem here. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 22, you want to write that down, verse 23 to 24, it says this, that the, the, it says a virgin is in, if, a, if a virgin is engaged, engaged to a man and another man meets her in the city and goes to bed with her, you must bring, listen to this, the two of them to the gate of the city, which is public humiliation, and stone them to death. Now, just, just hang on that thought for a second. Because during the engagement period, the family actually of the groom would come and bring the gift, and the gift has three main reasons for it, okay? One of them was actually provide um, enough support for the family to be able to provide for the wedding ceremony or the marriage or the feast. As you remember, um, Jesus' first miracle was in a wedding, and it was a long time, it was seven days. So the groom would come and kind of help the father. But it will, it will also be um, for the bride. Because if the groom passed away in this process, the, the, the finances or the gifts that we're giving would actually help the bride throughout that time of recovering and going into uh, a normal life again. And then you provide also a divorce insurance, which means that if one of them was unfaithful, the other one would receive back their gifts. Now, I mentioned to you that engagements here or in, in Jewish society between 6 and 12 months, but in the U.S. in the last year, the average engagement period was 15 months. And the average of the bride was 25, and the groom was 27. Now that's very different than Mary and Joseph. Mary was probably 13, 14 years old, and Joseph was a little bit older, so they were both teenagers. So now you need to, you need to think about this just for a second. Because the problems that we're going to evaluate in this text are not related to the old ones who, the, who, who are mature in the faith. They're related to two teenage kids. Now, the second stage of the wedding, it was, or the, the, this process was the wedding or the marriage. And this would be a celebration, like I said. It would be a seven-day period uh, of celebration. The gifts were offered, uh, who were offered by, the, by the groom were actually being used by this point. And it would be a great time. Now, if I were to ask you, 
What's the average price of a wedding in the United States based on last year's, um, I'm going to give you the, 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 the Association of Wedding Professionals. What would you say? You don't have to shout any, but just think too much. <laughs> so uh, let, me, let me just put in perspective here. The average price of this was $22,000. The average price was $2,000. The average price of a honeymoon was $4,500. So after studying all, all the contacts of this, I realized that I um, felt really convicted that it would be a good time for me to actually make it public that when my girls get married, we're going to adopt the Brazilian way of doing weddings, which is the groom pays for everything. So, just wanted to put that out there. And if God gives me a son, I might change my mind after the two girls leave the house. Um, going back to the text here, uh, breaking up the engagement was a great, it was, it was, a, it was a serious issue. Because like I said, God, God has instituted this, this idea of marriage, and he has made it so serious that in the New Testament, he's going to be a reflection of Christ in the church. So he's, he instituted marriage, and you step into this with a seriousness that you're going to fulfill the things that not only honor God, but honor your partner. And then you go into a wedding, a marriage ceremony, thinking that this is, this is a real thing. So to get, to get an engagement was a great process, but to get divorced or to get out of that process was, was very serious. But there was a reason, and the reason was unfaithfulness. During the unfaithfulness process, if one of them was found unfaithful to the other person, you would be able to sign a bill of divorce, and the bill of divorce could be something that was given in two different ways. One of them was to give it publicly, which according to Deuteronomy 22, which we just looked at, if you did that process, if you used that process, you would come to the conclusion that that person would probably die. Now the other option is, according to Numbers chapter 5, it says you can actually give a private certificate of divorce. You only need two witnesses to be able to accomplish that. And as we will see, Joseph is going to use or try to use the one that's less damaging. The one that not only doesn't disgrace Mary, but actually maybe gives her a chance in life. Like once, once again, how many, of you, how many of you would be able to make a decision like that as a teenager? So now let's look at Matthew chapter 1 again, verse 18. We understand the engagement, but not married process, which is the whole two-stage process here. But look at the second half of this verse, and I'll read it again for us. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see with me right here the conception by the Holy Spirit. There's two things that are extremely important here. Number one, Mary was found pregnant. And the second one is the, the angel proclaims that the, the pregnancy did not come by natural means, but was done by con- a conception of the Holy Spirit. But now she's found pregnant, and the verb here is actually a passive verb, which means that Mary, and this is what Matthew is doing, listen to this, Matthew was trying to communicate to the, his Jewish audience that Mary did not make the first step, that he did, she did not take the first step in order to actually go after a unfaithful relationship with Joseph with another man. That's why the verb is passive here. This was something that was done to her. And God is not only able 
to bring Jesus into existence through the virgin teenage girl here, but also to protect the child. Think about this, to protect the child from the sinful humanity that Mary would have if she was giving birth to a natural child. So that's number one. Number two is the Holy Spirit is involved in this process. He's involved in this process as the conception and involvement of the Holy Spirit is nothing short of a divine miracle. Because Matthew is going to proclaim here, not, listen to this, that God is not only able to bring Jesus into existence through the virgin birth, but also once again to protect the child. He's proclaiming to the Jewish audience that Mary, listen, she's not been unfaithful. And this is important because if the child is not the result of infidelity, which means Mary and another man, in this child, it is not a result of Joseph's relationship with Mary. Then, Jesus can be a king. But if Jesus was born out of infidelity or out of relationship between Mary and Joseph from a natural perspective, Jesus could maybe become a king, but he would never become a savior. And you need to understand that that's exactly what Matthew is doing. If Jesus had no human parents, then what, Michael? Then you can scratch off the humanity of Jesus and the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 through 17, because Jesus would not be a human, so he had to have one human parent. If he had two human parents, then he would, have, he would not be able to avoid the curse of sin. Do you see the dilemma? Do you see where Joseph is? You're talking about placing responsibility upon sh the shoulders of somebody. Can you imagine this teenage boy? Not only that, Joseph had some amazing decisions to make. Look at verse 19 with me. Here's what it says. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, which he was not yet, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. Now, according to the recent statistics that measure how marriages are doing in this country, and I don't, I'm not sure how, how actually accurate those things are, but only 20% of the divorces that are done in this country are done because of unfaithfulness. 50% of them are done because what the studies show incompatibility. Do you realize that Joseph doesn't have the option of incompatibility here? Joseph's decision was not based on preference as much as it was based on God's law. The Bible says that he was a righteous man, which means he believed in the God of the Old Testament. So now he's measuring, he's filtering everything that he knows in order to make a decision about his life, his marriage, Mary, her family, my family. He's based, basing all his decisions based on the lenses of the Old Testament law. So what Matthew is saying, this, this guy, this teenage boy, he's a saint. He's an Old Testament saint who believes in the law of God and believes that the law of God is able to guide and direct him and now he's, he, he's, he doesn't know what to do to the point that the text says he's going he's gonna to divorce her privately. 
The question that he's facing here is not a question of how can God allow this to happen to me, but the question is how can I divorce her privately so she doesn't get stoned to death? How can I do this without damaging her? How can I have a life after this without being the Joseph who put little Mary to death? Joseph then chooses the unthinkable. He chooses to use the private sense of divorce instead of the public. He chooses grace over punishment. He chooses mercy instead of shame. He chooses trust when trust has been broken. And he chooses life instead of death. That's a teenage boy. Now, so in the midst of all this problematic situation that Joseph's facing, he receives this vision and he's commanded by being righteous. And then in the midst of all these, God intervenes, which is usually what happens to us, isn't it? In the midst of tough circumstances that we don't know exactly what to do and how to get out of it, God has to step in and say, I'm going to get you out of there and here's how you're going to get out and here's how you're going to get going. And so God goes and rescues him through an angel, through a messenger, gives him the idea of what's going to take and he's going to place Joseph back into a path that not only continues to obey God, but that Joseph now understands that God was behind all those difficult circumstances. And here's what happens. Look at the, ma- the messenger. Verse 20 and 21 with me once again. Here's what it says. When he had contemplated this, which is the divorce, the privacy of the divorce, when he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. Now, I want to I give you some statements here. And the statements that will come in a form of I know. The text is not saying I know these things, but what the angel is proclaiming is that God knows certain things that Joseph needs to know in order to be able to get out of that hole and make the right decisions. And here's the first thing, first thing that he knows. He says, I know who you are. Which in a tough situation is always know when somebody knows you, Right? I know you. I know the decisions you made. Those are not the decisions that you would make in a normal sense. So the angel comes and says, I know who you are. You are the son of David. I know you. Which is interesting because look at Genesis, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You are the son of David. I, growing up, sometimes I didn't always enjoy when people says, hey, that's, uh, that's Alexander's son. Because sometimes they were thinking on the negative things about my dad. Oh, that's such and such son. That's, that's, that's uh, David's son. But what the angel is doing is, listen, <laughs> listen, look at your lineage Look where you came from. I know you. This is significant because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have the Davidic covenant, and the Davidic covenant promises that the Messiah would come from David. And right now, Matthew is writing that this Messiah is not only going to come as a human, but now he's saying he's going to come as a God. And the Davidic covenant is going to be fulfilled in this pro- in prophecy, which we'll see in verse 23. 
Now, interestingly enough, the description of the son of David here is also used of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, as we just looked at it, when Jesus is called the son of David. But look at what Nolan, listen to what Nolan says. He says that the son of David concept highlights the importance of Joseph to the incorporation of Jesus into the Davidic era. The problems that Joseph finds himself in are problems that God's going to have to solve to show not only him, but the Jewish audience that God is in control of all the situations and then God has a plan and the plan is going to come through this messed up situation that he finds himself in because according to Matthew, he will save his people from his sins or from their sins. He not only knows David as a son of, uh, Joseph as a son of David, but also he knows Mary. And he says in verse 20, take her as your wife. She has not been unfaithful. I know you and I know her. This is divine knowledge. This is, this is the God who is all-powerful, all-knowing. Forget about the options of public humiliation or privacy. You're not using any one of those. Those are not good options in this situation. The option that God has for you is a little bit different. So take her because I know who she is. And just like you have been faithful, she has been faithful. And you can see that in the Gospel of Luke. Number three, I know who the child is. You understand that he's beginning to form the family? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The conception described here is not human, but it is divine. It is not through the, the power of human effort, but it is made known by God's design. She's not pregnant based on moral issues. She's pregnant due to God's divine planning. And so the conception, according to Matthew, happens by the Holy Spirit and not by Joseph. And why is that necessary? It was necessary because if Jesus was only human, perhaps he would be a king, like I said, but he would never be a savior. If Jesus had two human parents, he would not have been able to avoid the curse of sin. And I'm going to repeat that again. If two human parents produced Jesus, Jesus would not be able to avoid the curse of sin. Which means that he could not be able to fulfill where Matthew 1.21 says that he will save his people from their sins. Look at what he knows, verse 21. He knows that this virgin will give birth to a son. Now you're going to think, Michael, that's pretty easy. I mean, you only have 50% unless you have twins or triplets. That's pretty easy. But here's, here's not the question about easy or hard. Here's the question of track record. I know you. I know her. I know who the child is. I know he will be a boy. She will give birth. Now, did you notice that's not Joseph that's giving birth here? And you're going to say, Michael, I know. You, you forgot. You, you, you skipped your anatomy class here. Okay? <laughs> but the idea here is that there's there's no earthly father involved. According to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve made a mess out of normal life with God, 
God says that he will put enmity between you, your seed, Eve's seed, and her seed, the serpent. That is the only time in Scripture that says that a seed will come from a woman. And now when Matthew is writing this, he's actually reinforcing the fact that the seed is, the, 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 the offspring is coming from the seed of the woman. So there's no earthly father involved in this process. This is, this is interesting because the Bible always associates the seed with the man. And only in this case, the seed is not from a man, but from a woman, which means that God is orchestrating a child to be born outside of the natural world. The angel reflects that he knows two more things. I know what the baby will be called, and you will name him. Now, Jesus means Yahweh saves, which honestly, it's not, there's no other better name that could be given to this child, right? But Jesus saved. That is why Matthew 1.17 focuses on the human side of Jesus. And Matthew 1.18-25 focuses on the divine side of Jesus. He is both human and he is both deity. And here's the last thing that he knows. I know the child will have a purpose. Now, actually, before we do that, let me, let me ask you to Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 just for a second. I want to show you why this is important about the seed and the relationship that there's no earthly father involved in this process. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, After they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, once again, another dream, and said, Get up, take the child. Listen to this. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Now go down to verse 20. So they go to Egypt and now the angel of the Lord is going to show up again and listen to what he says. Verse 20, saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. You will never find in Scripture any point pointing to Joseph as the father of Jesus. And that's not to be mean. That's because Joseph is not. That's because God is the father of Jesus. And Mary was the mother of Jesus through the divine conception of the Holy Spirit. Now, you will name him Jesus, which means that you will have the privilege to call him his name, the name that God has given to him. So not even, he's not the father, but not even the name was given by himself. It was a name that was divinely given by God because it demonstrates the reason why he comes. Now, look at verse 22 with me. Or verse 21 as we finish here. I know the child has a purpose. Verse 21 says that he will save his people from their sin. This is significant because once again, Jesus is saying, Matthew is saying that Jesus has his He's exclusive. There's no other salvation. And number two, he's saying that salvation from their sins was a surprising declaration here because usually the need for forgiveness was always associated with the hand of God at work. So now Matthew is saying, hey, the hand of God is working and God is going to bring this through the person of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the one that's going to give salvation and not only salvation, he's going to bring repentance. 
Psalm 130, verse 7 and 8 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for the Lord exhibits loyal love and is more than willing to deliver. He will deliver Israel from all their sins. Not only one, not a few, not most of them, but all. Now let's look at the messenger. Let's look at the messenger in verse 22 to 23. Verse 22 says this, This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, this is pretty much a word-by-word writing from what the uh, Septuagint has translated from from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So in the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew Bible, Um, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 fits perfectly word for word in what Matthew writes. So Matthew is probably using the Septuagint to actually communicate what he wants to communicate in terms of what Isaiah has spoken. But we should not be surprised that Matthew actually starts here with the genealogy, right? Because now he's going to focus on the divine conception. And he has done that in order to fulfill what God has promised in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Now, that's significance because if you look at the context of Isaiah chapter 7, God tells Isaiah to go talk to King Ahaz. And, and King Ahaz doesn't have a very good attitude about the situation, so, so he doesn't receive the message very well. And so God's message through Isaiah ends up becoming a message to the house of David, to the whole nation. And the message was that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him, Emmanuel, which is God with us. Now, the word here for virgin has, 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 has brought some problems when it comes to translation. But I think the easiest way of getting out of this is just looking at the fact that Matthew used the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament to use the same word. And the same word pretty, pretty much means that this woman has not had physical relationship with a man. Okay. So it's clear that he's describing a female who has not had physical uh, relationships with a man here. Now, look at what Jonathan Edwards, when he talks about Jesus being born, listen to this statement. He says, Jesus was born into this world, not from it. He did not emerge out of history. He came into history from the outside. Jesus is not, Jesus has not uh, been the best human being that the, the human race can boast of, or he is a being or from whom the human race can take no credit at all. He's not a human because he became, he's not a human by becoming God, but God incarnate. God coming into human flesh from the outside. And this is the confirmation that God gives. It's a confirmation that his divine plans, his, his, his hands are all over this story. He has caused Mary to conceive without a natural process. He created Adam and Eve out of nothing, or Adam out of nothing. He created Eve out of Adam's side, and he created men and women out of natural relationships, and now he's going to create a baby boy named Jesus who is going to come through a divine conception. And this is the same God who spoke the world into existence. 
God is, as I told my students on Friday, God is about to bring the impossible or the possible into the impossible world that we live in. Now let's, let's look at the last part of this text. Verse 24 and 25, the marriage, which is stepping out in faith, right? Let's see if this guy is going to obey what God has told him so far. So here's what the text says. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He looked at his wife. He took his wife, but he did not have marital relationship with her until she gave birth to a son whom he named Jesus. Now Joseph has already been called a righteous man. And Matthew is going to exemplify to us right now, I think, how godliness is being displayed into this teenage boy's life. And I want to give you three things from this life, from his life right now, that you can jot down that you don't have on your outline. Number one, I think what Matthew is saying is not only Jesus is coming as fully man but fully God, but he's going to use an unusual couple, a little girl and a little boy. But this boy, number one, he's full of character. He's not only righteous, but he's obeying the Lord. And what I mean by full of character is when God speaks, he obeys. Which makes me think about the fact that not every time when God speaks to me, I, I obey like this. So when God speaks, He obeys. And we can, we can understand that, that He's full of character because God has told Him to do some things and He does it right away, which brings me back all the way to Genesis 22. In Genesis chapter 22, God had promised Abraham to give him a son. And Abraham had a son by that point who was Ishmael, but it was not the son of the promise it was not the son that god had promised him so so abraham's wife gets pregnant and she gives birth to a son named isaac and in genesis 22 god does the unthinkable he says hey listen you're gonna get up tomorrow morning you're gonna pack your bags and you're gonna go to a place that i'm gonna show it to you and you're gonna sacrifice that child for me so genesis 22 verse 3 says this Early in the morning, listen to this. Early in the morning, Abraham got up and settled his donkey, and he was in his way. No fussing, no complaining, no crying, no arguing, no screaming. Just obedience. Because he was full of obedience. Which means that when God listens, when God speaks, I mean, he obeys. Now, he's full of character in the sense that when God speaks, he listens. He says, do this, take Mary as your wife. And the text says that when he woke up in that morning from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. You obey. Now, let me ask you a question here. And I know we're not there. But if God showed up to you in that sense, in your teenage years, some of you are teenagers now, but if you could go back in time, if God showed up and He asked you the same questions, what would be your response? How would you respond? What about smaller things in life? Because God's not going to ask Jesus to be born again. That's already done. But what about the faithful things in, in the sense of my finances, the way I treat my kids, 
Maybe the way I respond to my wife. What about maybe driving? Did I hear a few amens? See, it's not the same concept. This is a divine intervention by God, but God has worked in details of our lives, right? So here's the question. When God speaks, do you listen? And when God speaks, do you obey? Now let me give you one more from, from Joseph. Joseph was full of belief, I believe. Which means that when God's word speaks to him, he trusts. He trusted God. He takes Mary. And he does once again the unthinkable. Look at verse 25 again. But did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son whom he named Jesus. Now, not only he took his wife out of that situation, he, he said, I am not only engaged, but I'm married to you. But he waited until this lady gave birth to Jesus because the Bible says that the virgin will give birth. Not only the conception will be miraculous, but the virgin will give birth. And Joseph, out of belief, understood that as a righteous man, a man who believed in the Old Testament law, now he has to fulfill that. Otherwise, even though he's married, he's still going to disgrace the lady. Because he was righteous and full of belief and full of character. And I, I, I'm convinced just by looking at his life that I have a long ways to go. Now, let me give you three principles, and you have them in your outline. But I want to close with one thing really quickly here. Do you understand based on Matthew 1.25 that what some people believe that it was Mary was um, a virgin for her entire life is not really true, right? Because it says that he waited until he, she gave birth to become her husband. John chapter 7 says that Mary had multiple kids. So the conceptual idea of the divine virginity of Mary is not biblical. Now, I want to give you three principles here, and you have in your notes. First one, God's track record is perfect. Because here's the thing. If God breaks one of his promises, then he's not God. He, he's not God. And just like the Apostle Paul says if in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is in vain. I would say this, if, if the, uh, the, the birth of Jesus and the conception based on the divine, divinity of the Holy Spirit and the, the virginal conception and birth are not true, then everything else is not true. Because if God breaks one of his promises, he has broken all his promises because that's not his character. So the past, present, and future hope depends solely on the immutable and faithful character of God, just as the Father divinely fulfilled His promise through his, the birth of Jesus, we can trust that He will fulfill the remaining promise declared in Scripture. Not only a few, not only 50%, but all of them. B, God is omnipotent, which means that He is divine and he's got a supernatural power which is illustrated by the virgin birth pronouncement and fulfillment here not only god says it will happen but he makes it come true 
And lastly, God is merciful. And oh, how we need a merciful God. Our Savior was conceived with a purpose to save His people from their sins. Now my question for you is, have you placed your faith in Him? Because I think based on what we've noticed the last few weeks as we study God's Word, we've realized that God has been faithful to all His promises and kept all of them up to this point. So if that is true, then it is your time to respond into faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this day. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is sovereign. It is inspired. It brings correction. It rebukes us. It teaches us. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who is all-powerful, all-knowing. You're always present. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you intervene in the midst of the most difficult situation in Joseph's life, not only to make him a man who would become engaged and then married, but also to become a man of character, a man of belief, and a man of faith. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for saving us from the destruction of our sins.